Billy Ward, also known as Billy Bike Truck, is a well-recognized name, brand really, in the adventure motorcycle travel community, synonymous with Charlie Borman. Billy is Borman's right-hand man for many things. But behind the scenes, there's a a little-known story about where Billy came from and just how he became so important to Borman and so involved in the motorcycle industry as it is today. Now, this story is not for the squeamish. It involves castrating a lamb, baby sheep, a divorce, a quick print business card machine, all sort of oiled down with a liberal application of Billy's silver tongue, and how all of that landed him at Long Way Round headquarters and, well, onward and upward. That story today, I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ed Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jim Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cycle Pump. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com I think as you're going to discover in this interview, Billy Ward, a.k.a. Billy Bike Truck, is a really interesting guy. Living life sort of on the edge, on his terms. He's bold, daring, charismatic, adventurous. He's a show promoter. He manages talent. He rides all over the world. He's wrestled crocodiles. He chased off lions for his clients. Deals with elephants when he's camping. Survived interrogations at border crossings. Led motorcycle trips. Done theater tours. But I think his real talent is the ability to step into the unknown figure it out, master it, and come out on top, even when he has no experience going in. Okay, hi, uh, I'm Billy, uh, Billy Ward, sometimes known as Billy Bike Truck, uh, born in Liverpool, brought up in Ireland, and, and I do, I think I'm an opportunist. I do anything that I can do that gives me that sense of travel and adventure. And much more in line with that kind of feeling than I am with money. So uh, anything that takes me anywhere interesting and to get involved in interesting projects and uh, the money comes secondary. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's cool to be here. You know, you know it's funny because in, in the intro, you, you said, uh, what, what was the word you used to, to say you're an opportunist? That, opportunist. Almost, that almost sounds slippery. Yeah, that's me. It's uh, Slippery Bill. It's uh, <laughs> Slippery Bill. Slippery Bill coming your way, the opportunist. Uh, uh, yeah, it does sound a bit slippery. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm always on the lookout for interesting projects and if i can't find them i make them 
So, so for example, you know, uh, uh, doing trips with Charlie. I know Charlie was on a few weeks ago with, with Charlie Borman. So I, I work with a lot of projects for Charlie. I manage a lot of projects for Charlie. And, uh, and that basically has meant me riding literally all over the world with Charlie from Central America, El Salvador, South America, uh, all over Australia, all over Africa, particularly Africa. And uh, I'm very, very lucky. And, and, and that, that didn't just happen by chance. I mean, you know, I was needing, looking for something exciting to do. And Charlie Borman didn't knock on my door. So I knocked on his door, if you know what I mean, and, and made an opportunity. And, uh, Boy, he and almost threw it up there, didn't he? But he not knocking on your door. <laughs> he, he would miss out. <laughs> he, would, he would never knock on my door. <laughs> yeah, hang on. Well, be, be, before we get too far ahead, I, I, I want to know, because you said you, you, you were born in the UK. You grew up in Ireland. Was, was motorcycles you know, something that came into your life really early in Ireland? Oh, for sure, yeah. I, uh, I had, a, I had a, an NSU Mobilette in Ireland. That was a 49cc little pedal uh, uh, Mobilette, a little... Uh, a, a, a piece of rubbish, basically, but it was like what you would see the the occasional priest on or a farmer on or something like that. So I had one of them when I was about I don't know about eleven, ten or eleven. And over in the UK, uh, I had a Honda Fifty, the Honda Fifty Step Through Honda Fifty, and I also had another Honda Fifty where I took the I took the fifty cc engine off and put it into a into a steerie. What well, over here we call it a steerie, a go kart with string to pull the to pull the uh, to pull the as for steering. And uh, so I was always messing around with, with motorbikes. And then as as you get a little bit bigger and you save up some Christmas money or save up some birthday money, and then you buy something else. And I think my first. Uh, proper proper bike was a kawasaki 250 uh, enduro slash motocross bike which was way out of my league and i was only about i don't know 13 14 then and so so yeah i've always always been into bikes but but i've never really been the big adventure motorcycle dude the you know the world that i sort of moved into about i don't know about 15 years ago uh i, I was always just into bikes just just into anything mechanical. I mean, uh, you know, and bikes were the easiest way. They were cheaper than cars, you know? So, uh, yeah, but, but then latterly I sort of, I, I realized that actually travel was a big thing for me. And if you can put both of them together, uh, you've got adventure motorcycling. And, and I think that's where, that's where, that, that, that's where I ended up in, in many, in many respects, you know? Well, the, in the early days with the bike, was it transportation or were you actually getting into it? Cause it sounds like if, if you're modifying and, and, and things like that, it's sort of somebody who's more into the actual scene rather than just transportation. Oh, it definitely wasn't transportation. No, it was, it was pure mayhem and pure, pure fun. I mean, like, you know, to take a, a little Honda 50 engine and, and, and bolt it to a wooden cart and put pram wheels on, uh, it, it was more, it was just crazy stuff, just fun and, and probably lots of dodgy stuff as well. Riding, you know, I mean, I always, I always give a second look when, you know, when young kids get, and I'm not, I'm not talking about bike theft, bike robber, robbers and things like that. Cause you see a lot of that on, on the news and that, but, but I'm talking when you see kids riding where they shouldn't be. And, and everyone says, look at that. That's terrible. That's shocking. Look at that. You they, mean like what, a field what, or something like that? Yeah, like a field or, or, or a back lane where clearly they haven't got, you know, they're underage yeah. looking and, and clearly they shouldn't be there. And, you know, well, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. I mean, you know, I, I, I've done that. And, and, 
and I did that loads when I was a kid. We always, if you like, broke the rules and rode where we shouldn't and rode a bike that didn't have the appropriate, you know, uh, uh, licensing or, or, or whatever. I mean, that was just part of growing up. I mean, bear in mind, I got brought up in, 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 in Ireland and in Liverpool, like working class, pretty rough areas. And, uh, you know, no one could go out and just buy a motorbike you had to you had to save up for for for, for a year and, and then buy a second hand one from a scrapyard kind of thing and then try and fix it and then you know and to me that was great that was that was pretty cool actually i mean but it ended up you know we were often on the fringes of of of, of not doing it properly you know and getting told off by the police and i used to get stopped in ireland on my little mobilette and you know i was only a kid and uh, but then again, I, I'm just thinking aloud here. I drove a car in in Ireland at around about the same time. But but everyone did in the village, a little village uh, near a place called Carlingford, a beautiful little village called Ormeath is where I was half brought up. And uh, I used to get stopped by the guards there like regularly. And and you know the the biggest threat they would give me is that if they catch me one more time, they're going to tell my granny. And, and my granny would, would batter me. I mean, she would literally batter me. I mean, bring in the police or the guards, the guardee, as the Irish police, the guards, bring in the guards to the house. I mean, and, you know, and and that's what they would do. They, they never took me to court or, you know, or, you know, I done my license. I didn't have a license. So, so yeah. So I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is when I do see kids that you raise eyebrows to because you think, well, no way is that kid old enough to be riding that bike. I always give them a little bit of, I always cut them a little bit of slack, really, you know? Mm. You mentioned travel in there. You sort of said about uh, travel, mixing travel with motorcycles. But but at one point you ended up working in a corporate job. Were you traveling before that or, or is that something that came much later? And I think I've been, I've been traveling whenever I, whenever I got the opportunity. And then luckily I got jobs uh, in my career, I got jobs that took me abroad. I worked in the States, uh, uh, back and forth to the States uh, for a company called Cable and Wireless. I then worked for another international company called Accenture. And, and they all gave me a fair whack of, uh, of stateside travel. And, and, and I, I worked for a, a university called the Open University, which is uh, over here, they call it the University Without Walls, a very famous British Open University. It's sort of a very famous university with, with students literally from Hong Kong to New York to LA, uh, right across Europe, Eastern Europe. And uh, I worked with them and, and again, travel, travel, travel. And uh, yeah, so it, it was... Uh, I was very lucky, although, you know, I think we, we often plan our own luck or we make our own luck. So I, I, I went down them, uh, them avenues that, that got me to places where I wanted to be. What was it that you were, what was your expertise for corporate life? Wow, expertise. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, basically, I worked in uh, big IT systems. So we would, we would sell uh, Accenture, for example, or Cable and Wireless. We would, we would put big systems into, into big corporates to help them utilize IT for, for learning and development. And so, uh, you know, there were, uh, content management systems, learning management systems, uh, uh, HR systems. And that was my role. And what was the big step away from, from corporate? What made you leave that? Okay. Well, there's two, there's a couple of rules in life. Uh, one rule I think is, don't marry a lawyer. And the second rule <laughs> is... Hang on a second. This, this sounds like your rule. <laughs> yeah, I, I make the rules, okay? My life, I make the rules. So the second rule is don't marry a divorce lawyer. And, uh, and I broke both of them rules. And in breaking both of them rules, <laughs> it, it, 
around 2005, well, it was 2005, uh, I, I had a massive divorce, like a massive divorce. And uh, yeah, basically it was like very, very, very painful. And, well, just uh, tell that story about how it happened. Ah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, you got on me in tears. You know what I mean? It's like 2005. It's still raw. It's a long I, I time could be, ago, I, I could be in tears. I'm an emotional kind of character, though. That's the trouble. Very emotional. And uh, no, it was it was a hard one. I, I, I Some of the things in court, when we were in court, like one of the, because over here, you know, we, we tried to do the friendly thing. But, you know, when you're married to a divorce lawyer, it was never going to, it was never going to end well. That's for sure. And, but I remember, uh, one of the things that came out in court was uh, that I smuggled a, a lamb. We're talking sheep here, you, you, you know, a lamb. Yeah. We had a so we were in Ireland, and the local farmer was walking past with a lamb in his hand, a hang, hanging in his hand from its legs, like so, upside down, and uh, and it was live, but it was clearly just born and all wet and gungy and that. And uh, and I had some English holiday makers with me, and they were with me in Ireland, and I was showing them around, and I said, "Hey, Francis." What are you doing? What are you doing with the lamb? What's going on? He said, I'm just taking around the back of the house to kill it. And I went, oh, Francis, what, 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 what's that for? And he went, and basically what he said was that the mother, uh, the mother had just died. So he's got a lamb with no mother. And on a, on a, on a lovely Walt Disney movie, what you would do is you would, you would get that lamb and it would be uh, sort of looked after by another sheep. You'd introduce them together. But anyway, but in the real world, a lamb is often worth about 50 pence or 50 cents. And so a, a farmer, you know, who's like only making very small margins, isn't really going to bother with that generally. And uh, where I was embarrassed because I had these people were on holiday. So uh, I said, don't, don't be ridiculous. You're not, don't be doing that for people on holiday. And, and we had a bit of a row. And he all of a sudden he said, okay, you take the lamb. So he gave me the lamb. And I said, I will give me the lamb. So I took the lamb off him. We had a row and I walked off with my English friends and and uh, and we looked after the lamb for the rest of the summer, like sort of six weeks, seven weeks, something like that. And uh, and and I had my kids over there in Ireland for, with me. And then uh, and then we, we came home and I took the lamb back to the farmer's house. And now the lamb is a big strapping lamb, very healthy. We've been feeding it, you know, every two hours, like cholesterol and the proper lamb milk and everything. And then... Uh, and we had a great time. The lamb used to go out with the kids every day, follow them everywhere. The lamb loved them. They loved the lamb. But I told them, look, when we go home, back to England, we're going to give the lamb back to the farmer and he can put it in the field and blah, blah, blah. It's going to be fine because my kids were only only little. And, uh, and I took it back to the farmer and he said, well, well, leave it around the back. I'll kill it when you've gone. And I went, well, you can't kill it now. We've called it Lucky. His name's Lucky. He's just, we've just saved his life. You can't kill him now. And he said, he said, well, I, I don't want him. What, what am I going to do with him? I went, I don't know. Just, just take him. Uh, and in the end, I put him in the boot of the car. And uh, well, was, sorry, a land, we had a, an, an old Land Rover, an old classic Land Rover, Series 3. And put him in the back of the Land Rover in a cardboard box. And we took him across the Irish border into the Northern Irish into the Northern Ireland. So that's one border with soldiers and guns and, you know, what's in the back of the car, sir, and oh, nothing, you know, and the lamb was in the back of the car, like in a box. And then we went from uh, from Northern Ireland across to Scotland, went through another another border with soldiers and, you know, guns and mirrors looking underneath the car for explosive devices. Bear in mind, this is back in the day. Eh? This is, mm -hmm. uh, the Irish were still, uh, 
you know, there were still issues going on in Ireland with, with Britain. And uh, and then we got it from Scotland and came down to where about four hours drive to where my, you know, where my family house was, where, where my wife was. And, and I said, look, I've got great news. Guess what? guess what's in the box? And she went, oh, you've bought me a present. And I said, well, sort of, but it's really quite exciting. And so I opened the box and the lamb jumped up and, and she was just not amused at all. I mean, I don't know whether it's a thing with lawyers, but they don't like lambs. If, you, if you've ever got a lawyer in your, on your horizon and you think, what will I buy her? Don't buy her a lamb because right. it just didn't go, didn't go very well. Or buy her a lamb and obey the first rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she was. She went crazy, basically, and and uh, and don't get me wrong. We we didn't get divorced because of that, but it, that was that was the lamb that broke the camel's back, <laughs> even though there was no camels involved. So in that particular story. So in your court case, is this that she's she's brings up yeah. the topic that you've smuggled a lamb to save its life as a discrediting thing, a story about you? Oh. Big time, irresponsible, teaching the children to lie, crossing borders, to lying to police, lying to to the soldiers, lying to the security services, uh, uh, com- making the children complicit in the lie, and uh, and 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 we put the lamb in the in the garden. I made a little place for it in the garage, but then he's a lamb, so we put him in the garden, and he's outside in in the city. You know, we're in a city, Newcastle upon Tyne, northeast coast of of the UK, and people were coming from all over to see the lamb. It was like an exciting thing that ever happened in in the local area, and people were coming to borrow the lamb. Can can you bring the lamb for my children's birthday party on Saturday? We'd love to have the lamb, and you know, and uh, and but my plan was literally to get rid of the lamb. You know, take it to one of these like city farms. And and it would be cool, you know. Take it, they just drop it off. But of course, I took it to the city farm, and the city farm said, "That's fantastic. Yeah, we, we'll have them. We'll we, we look after. We'll look after her." And I went, "Oh well, it's not a hare actually. It's a it's a he lamb." And he went, "Oh, that's a big problem." I said, "Oh why why?" He said, "Well, we, we'll only accept it if he's being castrated." And I said, "Well, well, he's he's just a lamb, you know." He, he said, "Have you got his documents?" I said. Well, no, he, he was born in a field. He hasn't got any documents. He's, he's just a lamb. And, then, and he said, oh, no documents, no castration. He couldn't have him. Anyway, I tried loads of city farms. Well, half a dozen city farms, like within a radius of 100 miles from where our house was. And no one would have him unless we castrated him. So uh, so me and my middle girl, <laughs> who, who later became a doctor. She's a doctor in the NHS. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 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 working in the NHS in, in Liverpool in a big hospital and maybe this is where she got it from but I said okay Ella me and you we're going to learn about you know the birds and the bees here we're going to castrate this lamb because it's the only way we're going <laughs> to it's the only this all came out in court by the way can you imagine this in court and if, if you have the wrong perspective on it mm. and you're sitting there as a judge in court and you're saying and then they took the child into the garage what, what with a blade and to castrate a, a baby a lamb and so it was it just wasn't going really well at all and uh but the the, the quickest way to castrate these days the, the the easy way is you have a castration ring so it's a tiny little ring it's about i don't know five six centimeters in diameter a rubber ring uh it looks like cheerios we have a cereal over here called cheerios it looks like a little cheerio it's mm-hmm. a tiny little thing and uh, and you basically just put that onto the onto the testicles of the lamb and you leave it on there for, you know, three days and the testicles, it stops the blood going to the testicles and they just fall off. So it's castration and it's, it's really easy. So I said, look, 
look, Ella, this is what we're going to do. Okay, we're going to castrate the lamb. This is how it works. These these are testicles. These make all the sperm to make the to fertilize the egg. So we had a whole, you know, whole lesson about it all. This is how it all works. Now you're going to hold him up and I'm going to get this little ring and put it on his testicles. No problem, daddy. This is fine. Ella was all over it. This is cool. She's holding him up. Poor lamb's looking at me thinking, wow, what, what's going on here? I, you know? And anyway, I couldn't, I couldn't get the, this little ring onto its testicles because its testicles are about an inch and a half in diameter. And this is about, I don't know, a quarter of an inch in diameter. And so I got like circlip pliers, you know, I tried to open it up with circlip pliers and push his testicles into the, into the ring. And he was screaming. And then my daughter would say, oh, don't do that, daddy. It's hurting me. So then I thought, great. What I'll do, fairy liquid. Fairy liquid is like a washing liquid that we have here. It's like the, the, the one that's been out forever. Went inside, got some fairy liquid, poured fairy liquid all over his testicles. Now the lamb was looking really quite pleased, to be honest. The, the <laughs> lamb started, the, things are looking up. And then, and then again, I tried again. But now, because the fairy liquid was over his testicles and over my fingers and over the pliers and over the, it just kept popping off all the time. It just kept nearly getting there and then bang, the testicle would fly out one way or fly out the other way and and the lamb and the lamb would scream and uh, and then of course my daughter was getting upset and anyway long story short the judge the judge didn't didn't think it was a very good idea to be teaching my girls how to castrate a lamb in your garage in a in a in, in a in a city in in, in the uk and uh, so people so are so close-minded it's so close, man. It's so narrow-minded. I couldn't believe it. And, and long story short, I took that lamb on a four-hour drive back to Liverpool, right? Liverpool. And I walked into I walked into this city farm in Liverpool near a place called Toxford. And I went in and I told him more or less the story that I've told you and that my wife's gone ballistic and, and she's a divorce lawyer and it's going to go bad. And, and he said, you know what, mate? He said, I love the story. Give us the lamb. We'll, we'll just have him. So they took the lamb, Lucky, Lucky the lamb. They mm. took Lucky the lamb and Lucky the lamb had a lovely, lovely long life. And every time we visited my mum, my mum lives in Liverpool. Every time we and the girls went to visit my mum, we'd go and see Lucky the lamb. And uh, so the story of Lucky, Lucky the lamb did quite well out of it. I mean, he he ended up having a pretty good life and, and didn't end up getting eaten. Whereas if he would have stayed in Ireland, he, he would, he, his life wouldn't have been too good, to be honest, in the end. And, uh, so, and, and it's all perspective. I mean, the, the judge could have seen it a different way, you know, but. Yeah, I, I think I was framed, you know, yeah. I think uh, I was framed. They were all against me, you know, and, uh, but, uh, but anyway, I, I basically changed my, that basically changed my life. So we got divorced uh, after that, just a few, just a few months after that. And, uh, and a very, very quick divorce as well. When you're married to a divorce lawyer, that's the only thing that, that's the only good thing, that it all, it all happens really quickly. And, uh, and I went from like a pretty, pretty highly paid, highly responsible job, traveling all around the world uh, with Accenture and with cable and wireless. Uh, and I just went to ground zero and said, right, my life isn't about money anymore. It's not about the second, third car. It's not about a bigger house. It's, uh, you know, all of that is sort of nearly, <laughs> nearly all gone now anyway. And, uh, and where did it get me? So, so I literally turned my life upside down and said, right, brand new KTM 950 Africa, here I come. And, uh, and so off I went and, and well, you quit I, your I, job too, and go? I quit it. I quit everything. Yeah. So, uh, I, I quit my job. I had, uh, that sort of divorce came through. I had nowhere to live. Uh, I had three children, so uh, so I 
did a deal with the kids and said, okay, kids, I'm going to go away for about two months, okay? And they said, yeah, that's cool, Dad. So off I went. And uh, and I had a, a bit of a, an amazing experience. And I could just, I traveled from here to Morocco and uh, from the UK to Morocco, like down to France and Spain, into Morocco, stayed a few weeks in Morocco, went across to Mauritania, uh, went, went up to, uh, to, to the famous uh, Pink Lake, uh, the Dakar. Uh, I basically followed the Dakar route, if you like, into Senegal. And, uh, and, and it just occurred to me while I was doing all that, at first I was terrified by it all because I was so out of my depth. Uh, like I even, I remember my first few nights in Mauritania, I, I had a wire rope, like a security wire rope, and I padlocked it to my ankle through the zipper of the tent to the back wheel of the bike because I thought, you know, it's a brand new KTM. I mean, what if one of these villages come and steal steal my brand new KTM, you know what I mean? And get rid of it on the black on the black market, the KTM black market in Africa. And uh I'm, you know, but after a few weeks, you realize, well, A, if they did, they're going to have to cut my ankle off. And that's not a good thing. And B, no one's going to steal your KTM, you know, no one's going to steal your bike in the middle of Mauritania. You know, it's just not going to happen. And uh, and that takes a while to dawn on you, a few weeks anyway. And and then by the time I got to Senegal, I was, yeah, I, I, I cracked it. And I thought, you know what, this is a way this is the way I'm going to carry on the rest of my life. So from 2005, I've been riding motorbikes basically well, all over the world. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really stopped. Back then, you, you thought, i got to make this into a living? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I had a, a, a revelation one morning. I just remember getting up out of the tent and, uh, and i just seen nothing but dunes and dunes and dunes and, and, and it was like amazing. And I said, you know what? With all the drama and all the trauma I've had on this trip and all the frightening nights sitting in the tent on my own being scared of noises and things like that, uh, actually people will probably pay good money to come and experience that. You know, particularly people who were like me who were extremely well paid but didn't have time. And I thought, you know, I, I could make a package where where people could 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 get time, you know, they could fly in, fly out kind of time or, you know, or I could, uh, I started, a, that's where bike truck, you know, people say, why, why did he call you Billy Bike Truck? Well, uh, Billy Bike Truck was, was the revelation. I, I started up a business called Bike Truck and now basically putting your bike, I would pick your bike up, put it in a, in a big truck, in a big articulated uh, semi and, uh, and then I would take it to Africa and you would fly into Africa and then I would give you a map, a route, uh, campsites, uh, ideas, and you would go and do your, go and do your adventure. And then you would fly out and then it would take me, well, a week to take your bike back to, to Ireland or back to Scotland or back to England. And, and so, yeah, I, I did bike truck for a few years. And, uh, and, and if you remember around about that time, uh, 2005 was when I started doing that. There, there was, uh, Long Way Round was 2004, but Long Way, Long Way Round was what got me through my divorce. I, I used to watch Long Way Round, uh, like, you know, minutes by, I, w- I would not even watch a full episode. I would only watch maybe 20 minutes and uh, because I didn't want it to go that so quickly and I wanted another night of, 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 of relaxation and because I knew that once I had gone, you know, and back to the divorce, the divorce, the divorce you know, your, your whole head is done in with divorces are pretty horrible. And, uh, and mine was particularly so. And, and so, yeah. So that, that's part of the impetus for you to go on the trip though, by the new KTM. Well, uh, with long way round, 
I know it sounds like a cliche, but long way round was the impetus that changed my life, was the motivation that changed my life. Because I, I looked at a long way round and thought, you know what? I, I, I like the way Charlie Borman speaks. I like the way Hugh McGregor speaks. And, and I, I reckon I could be their friend and I could go around the world with them. <laughs> and I remember talking to mates saying, I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect with Charlie Borman and Hugh McGregor and going to see whether I... And everyone was saying, quite rightly everyone was saying oh yeah that's interesting billy yeah you know and are you still on the medication from the divorce billy you know it was like and then and then bizarrely you know a few years on well not a few years on uh and quite soon after that uh i basically did knock on charlie borman's door but but did you well you're saying this did you really this is an intriguing moment to take a, a quick break. I'm going to talk about a couple of companies that helped bring this episode to you today. But stick around because when we come back, Billy has a just a fantastic, kind of unbelievable story of how he manages to go from this guy on the outside to convincing Charlie Borman and Russ Malcolm, the producer of Long Way Round, to take him on to run things. Anyways, stay with us. There's more coming up. See and be seen. Cyclops Adventure Sports makes lighting for motorcycles. Now, I love their mantra, see and be seen, because let's face it, motorcycles are difficult to spot at times and, and riders or drivers rather are not always on the lookout for motorcycles. There's a size factor in there. You know, a bike is small and small things are usually far away on the road. And, and that plays a lot into why um, us as motorcyclists aren't seen as well as a car. But no matter the issue, the problem is being seen. So Cyclops helps us out by building amazing lighting solutions, both for the front and the back of your motorcycle. Cyclops Adventure Sports makes plug and play LED headlights. And LED is, um, the whole thing with LED is, not only does it draw low power, but it's instant on and off. At least in my mind, this is the big thing with it. instant on and off. You, you've seen LED lighting. You've been behind a vehicle that touches or brakes. And there's something about that instant on, that, that punch that light gets. It demands attention. It's almost as good as a police flashing light. And for the back, Cyclops makes an ingenious kit. Actually, it's for the back and the front called the Evo Safety Turn Signal Insert. And the Evo system turns your front signals into super bright LED riding lights and commanding attention right there, adding to your, your lighting visibility, you know, for oncoming traffic. And it also illuminates the road better for you. Then for the back, the Evo uh, turn signal system changes your rear turn signals into super bright LED brake lights. So when you touch that rear brake, you get these super bright LED red brake lights that snap on and grab the attention of drivers behind you. That's see and be seen. There's no doubt about it. And of course, the front and rear um, turn signals also function as regular turn signals as well. So have a look at what Cyclops does. You'd be amazed at the, the number of products and when you get them in your hand, the quality of what they're making. And I think it's obvious when you understand that Cyclops Adventure Sports is a family business and it's a family of riders. Man, you should see what their son is doing riding. Uh, I, think, I think he's riding a KTM incredible rider. But in any case, they know firsthand what a rider's perspective is because they're riders themselves. Drop by, have a look. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you, you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. 
I want to offer you a motorcycle trip, an adventure, a trip to a place maybe you've never been before, maybe you'll never get to visit, all for about the price of a fast food meal. Road Dog Publications specializes in motorcycle adventure travel books. And what better way to escape for a vacation than a book? I mean, you can sit down and just totally immerse yourself in somebody else's adventure. And, and there's a lot of great titles out there. The, the owner, Mike Fitterling, the owner of Road Dog Publications, he's a rider himself. In fact, Mike has a few titles of his own on, in the Road Dog collection. But other titles include Graham Field, In Search of Greener Grass, Eureka, Different Natures, uh, Ron Davis, Shiny Side Up, Zoe Cano has several titles, including Hellbent for Paradise, um, Paul Van Hoof has Man in the Saddle. Uh, I think Mike Fitterling's, one of Mike Fitterling's books is Thoughts on the Road. There's so many more to get. Drop by their website and have a look. You can order right from the website and get it delivered to your door. The website is rooddogpub.com, rooddogpub.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. But really, like for, for, for the money spent, you've got an entire adventure there. You just carry around and read when you get a minute. Um, I love motorcycle adventure books. Rooddogpub.com. IMS Products has been making parts for motorcycles since 1976. They've been making parts for racers all this time. And just about every off-road racer runs IMS uh, products on their bikes. And um, they make products for us, too, with that same quality, IMS foot pegs. They have a full line of foot pegs for adventure motorcyclists that will suit your riding style. And they're all made in the USA. They all come with a lifetime warranty. They're all made with the same top quality manufacturing process. And they look really good as well. So it's a, it's a huge bonus. Check out what they've got. It's IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Uh, quite soon after that, uh, I basically did knock on Charlie Borman's door. <laughs> but, but did you, well, you're saying this, did you really believe it? Did you really think that, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get in contact with these people who are already very successful and somehow woo my way in? Well, I, I suppose I didn't think I was going to do that. I knew I was going to ride motorcycles around the world. So, mm-hmm. so that was official. I, I, I want to do what they did. And, 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 you know, the, they were both in the UK then. I mean, Ewan lives in, in LA now, but they were, they were both in the UK then. And I thought, how, wouldn't it be great to meet them and, or even just to talk to them about how they did it or, you know, and, and I bought this brand new KTM. I, I was all, I was, I was loving it. And, uh, I, and I'd come up with this bike truck thing and yeah, I, yeah, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't like, <laughs> I wasn't like a weirdo, like it was like hiding down the end of Charlie Borman street, like waiting, you know, waiting to see him. But, uh, but I did uh, MCN. Uh, uh, MCN is our, you know, uh, motorcycle news is our big paper over here. Uh, I think you have a similar one over there. But uh, you know, it's out every Wednesday, and it, it basically gives you whatever's going on in the world of motorcycling. And so I, I picked up MCN. I get it every Wednesday, and I looked, and it said Charlie Borman is going to be in such and such a place doing a talk about about long way round. And I thought, wow, how cool is that? You know, so so off I went and rode down to a place called Squires in Yorkshire. And it's a, it's a motorcycle pub club kind of thing. You know, it's a, a meetup place. And Charlie was doing the gig there. And and Charlie was in front of, I don't know, it must have been three, 300, 400 people, maybe even more. It was a long time ago, 2005, I suppose, just, just after my divorce. I think my divorce was 
April 2005. But anyway, and so Charlie stands up and I couldn't see him. In fact, none of us could see him because he, he wasn't standing on a stage. He was just in the bar, like in, in a big pub. Uh, and, and then he started speaking and no one could hear him because he didn't have a microphone. And there was several hundred people there. And you know yourself, if you put several hundred people in a room, the, the sound just disappears. Mm -hmm. There's no sound. And, uh, and then he started showing uh, clips of, uh, of Long Way Round. And people were saying, we can't hear you. We can't see you. And they're all <laughs> shouting. And it, was, it was all a bit ropey, to be honest. And uh, in fact, there was a woman, there was a woman behind a bar who had a microphone who'd shout out, Number twenty-two, ham and chips. Number twenty-three, ham and chips. And and I said, can I can I borrow that love for for the for the lad? No one can hear him. And so I I took the microphone and gave it to Charlie. And then he was on the speakers. So basically, it was really crap. Okay. So at the end of it, there was a big queue, and I went to see him, and he said, and he was doing autographs, and I was like blown away because although it was crap production wise, it was. The content was brilliant. I mean, the stories were brilliant. And uh, and I said, he said, who do you want me to sign it to? And I said, well, actually, Charlie, I, I don't, I don't want your autograph. I just wanted to say hello and and say that you know I really enjoyed tonight. But let's be honest, it was a bit shit, really, wasn't it? And and, he, <laughs> and Charlie's not not a quiet man, you know. Charlie, Charlie like said what? And I went, well, it was. We couldn't see you. If it wasn't for me giving you the microphone. We couldn't see you. We couldn't hear you. You were doing clips with a DVD. He didn't have. He didn't have clips all edited out. He had a DVD that he was fast forwarding to and fast re reversing to, and of course missing them all the time. And I said it was really crap. I said this could be a great show. And he said, so what? You know, there was loads of bad language, but I won't go there. But he said, so so what are you? Some sort of theatre producer? And I went, and something in my head. Remember the opportunist, the slippy opportunist. <laughs> I said, well, actually, Charlie, that's exactly where I am. I'm a theatre producer. And he went, oh, that, that's interesting. And I said, yeah, and I'd love to meet you properly in London at the headquarters of Long Way Round, uh, the shrine of Long Way Round, and talk about it. Because I think what you've got here is a touring show. It's a proper touring show, and I could produce it, and, uh, and we could both make a, 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 bit of, a bit of revenue from it, and it would be great for your brand as well. And, on, uh, and before, Billy, uh, sorry, let, let me interrupt you there because I, I, just before you get to that, I've got to ask you, <laughs> what went through your head when he's standing there? And I, I think by the sounds of it, he probably hates you at this point when it's first meeting. <laughs> he probably hates yeah, this guy. I mean, what goes through your head to say, yes, I'm a theater producer? <laughs> <laughs> it's an Irish, Irish Blarney. Okay. It's like, there's a thing in Ireland called the, the, the Blarney Stone. So uh, kissing the Blarney Stone gives you the a bit of the, a bit of a, a handy tongue <laughs> and it just came to it just came to my lips it, I, I don't know it just I just over a sudden seeing that that is a good way forward and I said it and uh, but you know that you're gonna be always found out eventually don't you yeah I tell you what he didn't find me out for a long time and and I tell you what who nearly found me out was uh, Russ Malkin Russ Malkin the producer of long way okay so I I got off the train in London and I was terrified because I'd, I'd lied. I was way out of my depth. Uh, I didn't know how to produce a theatre show. But hey, I was a consultant for one of the biggest international consultancy companies, corporations in the world. Okay, so they would give me a project in Accenture and you would go and work out how to make the project work. So I just said, Billy, come on, relax, calm down. It's just a project. 
So I, I did my research. I got in touch with lighting. I got in touch with sound. I got in touch with theatres. I, uh, you know, I, my, my brother was a comedian. Okay, so I, I had a little bit of a leg in because my brother was a professional comedian. So I could talk to him about you know gigs that he's done and when he's worked with 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 other comedians. I mean, he, you know, he's 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 done. You know, he was on the circuit then with with, with proper you know big players at the time and uh, so so i had a little bit of knowledge coming in from that i got off the train and in king's cross remember this is 2005 in king's cross there used to be a which is the big major city station in in, in london by the way uh, you got euston and king's cross and they used to have this machine there and i always remember seeing it you you put a five pound note in it and you type out on a keyboard whatever you want to say on a business card and then it gives you 20 business cards for whatever. And you just pick a template. And it was all old school. It looked like a, looked like a record player selector kind of thing, you know, and it just picks it. And I got 20 business cards and off I went. To, for, for me, the shrine, the shrine of Long Way Round, like, you know, to go to that garage where Ewan's stuff was there, Ewan's suit was there, his bike was there, the Long Way Round bike was there, the, 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 the support vehicle was there. It's the one we saw in the video. Everybody's seen it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, I was over the moon. I was over the moon. And I took loads of little selfies of myself with, with a camera camera, not a selfie, not a uh, not a mobile phone, but like a proper camera taking pictures of myself in there, like thinking, wow. And and and, and of course, Charlie arrived late, as he, as he always does. But when he arrived, he wheelied into the garage. He arrived, the, the doors opened, and they heard him on the GS, and the GS wheelied into the garage, and then he slammed on, and I was like, I was starstruck. It was like, my hero. I was like, it was just amazing. And uh, But then, of course, Russ Malkin, and, you know, Russ is a proper producer. He's hardcore. Like, he doesn't mess around. Like, Russ wants to know what are the numbers, you know, what are the times, what are the dates, what's going on. He, You know, Charlie just wanted to know, and how much how much money will we make again, Billy? <laughs> Say the figure again, like, you know. Whereas Russ was like, you know, Russ wanted their return on investment. And, and he was, to be honest, <laughs> Russ, if you're listening, I'd love you, but you were fucking hard work, mate. I mean, that was stressful. And then we swapped business cards. Like Russ gave me his card and I went, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I passed him my card <laughs> and I was like, whoa, and I'm really out on the limb now. It said, Billy Ward, theatre producer, you know. What kind of theatre have you produced, Billy, says Russ Malkin. And I said, oh, oh, you know, quite a selection, really, yeah, like a cross-the cross the parameters, you know, broad spectrum, broad spectrum. Uh, and he went, anything recently? Oh, yeah, I did a bit of comedy recently, a bit of comedy, because my brother had just done a gig, so it just came to my head, like, yeah, a bit of comedy. And, uh, and and that was it. And then we sat down, and long story short, we, we hummed and hawed about all sorts of stuff. And, and in the end, uh, uh, Russ left, and it was just me and Charlie, and me and Charlie just basically did a handshake deal. And the handshake deal was... I'll go and we'll do one theatre show, an evening with Charlie Borman, an evening of adventure with Charlie Borman. We'll do one. I'll pay for everything. I'll do, you know, the advertising, the marketing, the lighting, the sound, the theatre, everything. And uh, and if it makes money, we go 50-50. If it loses money, you, you've lost nothing. You just walk away. And Charlie said, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. And we shook hands. And, and we've worked together ever since, really. We, we, did, a, we did a two two national tours with that, like 37 nights 
on the first one and I think 35 nights on the second one. That's literally Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, like theatre to theatre, city to city. And, uh, and it was massively successful and, and, and it helped to keep the Longway brand going because the Longway brand was, you know, you know, I know the Longway uh, show is still out there, still talked about, but let's face it, it was 2004. And so, you know, anything that can bring it back again to, I think with the tour, I think the actual tour was 2006. And then we did another tour 2011. And, and then we took it to, uh, to the Middle East. We took it to Dubai. We did some shows in Dubai. We did some shows in Central America, in South America. Uh, we did some shows in Australia, South Africa. And yeah, so yeah, I've worked on a lot of theater shows with, with Charlie and, and, and learned an awful lot doing that. And, and I do my own show now. I do my own one-man show, uh, which uh, uh, which is I think is works really well and got some you know some good reaction in in Australia and yeah. So but, well, of course you learned lots when you did the theater with Charlie to begin with because you didn't know anything. Yeah. But I mean, and you don't have to be the judge at your divorce hearing to come up with a conclusion that you conned them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Could I say I, lied? I mean, I think that'd yeah, be pretty clear. I think if Charlie's lawyers are listening, I think that I think that word is an inappropriate word. Uh, yeah, okay, we, uh, we can just strike uh, that then. <laughs> inappropriate word, and uh, and I do love Russ Malkin uh, like a brother. He's like a brother to me. And uh, no, I don't think con. I don't think con, but blagged. Like in Liverpool, you would say you blagged your way in. You blagged it. So it was a bit of a blag. And uh, and Charlie, you know, Charlie. Oh, oh, during the tour, Charlie realized that I wasn't a theater producer. But, you know, at the end of the day, what did I do? I produced. Well, you, you with, pulled with it off. I, sat, I produced a, a theater show yeah. and I took it on tour uh, for 60 odd nights. So you had the two tours together. And Talk about that moment, though. Talk about that moment when Charlie found out, when he, when he came to you and sort of confronts you. No, it didn't really go like that. I, I think the... the the big win was we did that first show. We did it in Newcastle. So I chose home territory. We did it in a, in a, what they call a Matcham theater. That Matcham was a, the designer of the Victorian, the, the, the main Victorian style theaters around the UK. Beautiful, you know, uh, sort of late 1800s, beautiful little theater. Uh, and we did the show. We had, uh, I brought uh, special guests on as well because, you know, this was my first one and I, I was really scared in case, in case the show didn't work, in case I thought Charlie's stories and the way I'd pulled them together with Charlie, I thought they were awesome. But I didn't really know that other people would as well. You know, maybe I was just besotted by it all. And mm-hmm. and that, and so uh, so I, I had over here. We have these TV chefs called the Harry Bikers. So the Harry Bikers came to the show because uh, uh, I've done some work with, with them. And uh, and they're quite famous here, so so that helped. I I got a comedian, like a famous comedian, to do a 15, 20 minute uh, uh, startup, you know, like a like a house warmer, just to get the audience a little bit relaxed. I got Patsy Quick, uh, Patsy Quick, first British woman to finish the Dakar Rally. Uh, I got Patsy Quick uh, to do a little warm up with Patsy Quick, and that was awesome. So I I, I you know it was all bells and whistles, and that show was A, it was sold out, nearly a thousand people. So sold out. Wow. And uh, and uh, and and B, it was just a massive, massive success. I mean, Charlie that night, me and Charlie were, you know, drinking champagne and and I have a sort of reasonably big house here. Uh and and so Patsy Quick and her husband came back. We had uh, 
we had Chris Scott there. Chris Scott Adventure Motorcycle Handbook. Sure. You know, we had Chris Scott. Loads and loads of people came, and I invited anyone I knew in in the industry, and uh, I even invited Ted Simon. <laughs> Ted didn't come, but it was close. You know what I mean? And, and we had loads of loads of industry players there, even just in the audience. And uh, we had Dakar riders. We invited a load of Dakar riders. They were all in the audience. And and over the years, I've gotten to know all of these people really well, which is fantastic. And and we just had an amazing night. And Charlie was, I think Charlie was blown away by it. Well, we both were. And uh, and so that set up the relationship. So you know, there was if there was any uh, if there was any doubt, if you like, about my my blagging it, my, about my capability. Well, then it was irrelevant because we just done an amazing show. Even the theatre said, you know, the people who. You know, I've done a lot of theatre work since then, of course, and I know theatres really well. And but you, you know, you don't often get the theatre house coming out and saying, "Hey, guys, that was that was a fantastic night." You know, that was fun. You know, yeah. I, it was. It was just a massive success. So any any of the blag or the con uh, was was out the window. Really didn't really didn't matter. We had we had the uh, that must have been it must have been late two thousand and six because we had the Dakar car. Remember the BMW X five that they had in Race to Dakar. Mm-hmm. We had that at the event, so the original plan was to see whether we could get that on stage with the Dakar bike, but anyway, we, we couldn't. So what I did is I parked that X5 on Double Yellow Lion, Double Yellow's no parking zone, right outside the front of the theatre in rush hour traffic. And within minutes, the police were there, and they were, who who owns this car? And that, that car was as it was in the Dakar. It was all... It was all race to Dakar. It was a proper Dakar rally car. It was amazing, and uh, and and I said, I said, look, don't come and get me. Just leave it there because I want this to create attention outside. And uh, next minute, the television people came, and they were interviewing the police, and they were saying, well, what? And the cars can't get past, and it's mayhem, and everyone's getting cross. But at the same time, people were saying, hey, what's what's going on? What 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 is it? And then people who I'd already instructed was saying, oh, it's Charlie Borman. He's, he's on tonight, 7.30. And, and people were going, wow, is there any tickets left? And, and next minute we were getting walk-ins. And you don't, theatres don't get big walk-ins. We got massive walk-ins. And in the end, I, I couldn't hide any longer. I had to come out and the policeman said, what's going on? Who's, how come this car's here? And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Charlie Borman, blah, blah, blah. And he went, oh, Charlie Borman, long way round. And I said, yeah, come and see him. Come in, see him. Come and say hello. So I brought the police through into the front of the theatre, right down through the backstage of the theatre to the restroom. Said hello to the policeman. Gave him a book. Gave him a long way round book. Gave well, gave the two of them a long way round book. And uh, and and next minute, I looked and we were on television. It was all on television. Charlie Borman tonight has caused mayhem in blah blah blah, and his car has been stuck in the main highway and blah. And it was awesome. And we got a, about 150 walk-ins and, and sold sold the gig out. So wow. so that's that's going back to the slippy opportunist bit again, I suppose, eh? Uh, so you, you went on, to, and then that was the first one. And I, I assume the rest of it was just a, a success from there on in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we a few months after that, we probably to get it pulled together properly. Like, you know, it was a full theatre tour then, 37 nights around the UK and, and Ireland. I mean... Uh, that's a lot of work, you know, and you you, mm-hmm. you need to sell all them theatres. So we were doing about a thousand people a night for uh, for thirty seven nights. Yeah, about a year later. So, uh, wow. or within maybe within the year. So yeah, and they were they were it was the same show. I mean, we polished it so the show got the show got tighter, and it's just 
the anecdotes of, of Charlie Borman and Long Way Round and what's it like working with Ewan McGregor and all that kind of stuff that, that wasn't just for a biker audience. And that's the big win with Charlie. When you're working with Charlie, Charlie, you know, you, you, I, I don't know whether you come across this, but a lot of hardcore bikers won't like Charlie. They'll see Charlie as like the wealthy movie star actor sure. guy who's not really doing it properly. But but actually, Charlie has really quite a wide spectrum of an audience. He'll have people who just are interested in in travel or, or adventure or documentaries. And so like when we were, when we go out doing, you know, the 37 night tour, it wasn't bikers. In fact, bikers were probably maybe 30, 30, 40% bikers. The rest were Ordinary people, grandmothers, you know, men and women and, and, and young people, although the, the language can, can always be a bit of a bit, bit of a challenge sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we, we were very lucky. Charlie's got quite a, quite a warm kind of uh, broad appeal. And, and although he doesn't win always in the hardcore biker, what, what a lot of people don't realize is Charlie does drive like a, de- just ride like a demon. Like, I mean, he, he's one of the, He's one of the best riders I, I've ever I've ever ridden with. So uh, I don't I think I don't think he gets a lot of credit a lot of credit for that. He was uh, MCN rang us up one day and said that they wanted to do uh, a piece about Charlie racing on a track on a proper race bike on a track and uh, you know and the whole piece was going to be sort of about that uh, Charlie might be the king off road traveling around the world with you McGregor blah blah but on a racetrack we're going to take him apart. And, mm. and I explained that, that that's what the deal was because I started dealing with a lot of that side of, of Charlie's stuff. And, uh, and MCN were doing it. And I said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, Charlie's fine with that. Let's just go and do it. So we all went to, you know, uh, Donington. I think it was Donington. And uh, it's a racetrack over in the UK. And, uh, and, and anyway, Charlie, Charlie's racing skills were so hot that the, the bike cameramen couldn't keep, keep pace with him. And, and they, they were like, you know, they were, they were racers. They, they, you know, they usually use a racer on a bike to, as a camera bike. And, and so we had to get Charlie to slow down. And, uh, and Charlie went, well, I thought the whole idea was to show that I'm, I'm no good. And you said to go as fast as I could and, and I'm going as fast as I could. And, and so in the end, the story actually flipped on its head. And the story was, wow, Charlie's pretty hot on a bike uh, on the track. And, uh, Anyway, I don't want to be blowing smoke up his ass, but uh, but yeah, he's he's a pretty he's a pretty good rider, and I've, I've ridden a lot, you know, th- literally thousands and thousands of kilometers with Charlie all over the world, and you know he's there. <laughs> you know, my ambition would be to beat him once, you know, but I, I don't think I ever will, you know. Well, and, and um, I think some of that uh, disdain for long way round, you know, people say, you know, well, it's, it was easy to do because they had a truck or whatever the case is. I mean, uh, it, 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 I mean, I think that can make it hard in my mind being filmed the whole time. But in, in any case, it was a landmark film. I mean, it's just an, an incredible film that I think did a lot for a lot of people. And I've talked to a lot of people who have seen the film and said, you know, that changed their life, changed the way they, they looked at things. But um, no, for sure. I, I, I mean, just, can I just jump in on that? Because you know, what, one of the things that that often occurs to me when when I get that rebuffal about about Charlie uh, or, or about Longway, not just about Charlie, but is that a, co- a couple of things. One is they never planned to do a TV show. Okay, they fell in. I, I don't know whether Charlie talked about this on on, on his thing, but the, Charlie had no money to do a trip with his mate. The top and bottom of it. He had no money to do a four-month trip with his mate. And his mate said, let's do a book. We'll use my name, Ewan McGregor, to do a book. And the money from the book, that'll 
you know, that'll pay for your for for, your, for for the fact that you need to pay a mortgage and look after the kids and your wife while while you're traveling around the world with me on on this this idea. And and so they fell into long way round. You know, the next minute they're doing a book, and then Charlie says, "Well, you know, he's Charlie's dyslexic. He's he's the president of the Dyslexic Society of of Great Britain, and he can't spell any of them words. Like you know, so you know, and so he said, well, I, I'm not, I can't write the book.' And you said, "Well, I'm not writing a book. You know, I'm I'm Obi Wan Kenobi. I, I don't want to write a book. <laughs> you know, and uh, and so so the, the the book publisher they had to go back to the book publishing company and say. Ugh, I know you've given us all this money for the book, you know, uh, uh, but uh, we we really can't write a book. <laughs> so, so the, the publishing company, a little company called uh, Little Brown, uh, well, a fantastic company called Little Brown, who I became very f- friendly with over the years. They said, "Look, no sweat. We're going to give you some cameras for your helmet for the for the hotel room of a night, or for when you're camping. Uh, we're going to put some cameras on the bikes, and then you guys send." all that information back and we'll get, we'll get a, you know, a ghostwriter to, to pull it together. And then when you guys come back from, from the trip, you can spend some weeks with him and together, you know, he'll, he'll put your words onto the page and Charlie and you said, yeah, great, let's do that then. So the publisher was happy. Everyone's happy. And then the publisher said, actually, what would be really good if we had a third person with you, you know, because, you know, people get lazy, you get into the hotel, you're too tired to do a piece of camera and, you know, and we're scared of not getting the story. And then before you know it, they've got Claudio von Planter. Before you know it, they've got Russ Malkin saying, well, Jesus, you've got all these cameras and you've got a cameraman, you might as well make a show. And and it was sort of stumbled into. And and yet a lot of people look at Long Way and, you know, some some biker celebrities here, I, 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 I hear, I, I read it. A really, really damning article from, uh, and, and I love Nick Sanders. Nick Sanders, I've always tried to do the right thing with Nick and and, and sort of bought, bought all of his books. And everything. But he wrote a terrible article, uh, in my view, saying how terrible Long Way Round was and how it was just a big publicity machine and then they had spare bikes and the back of a big truck following them in convoy. And, you know, and, and that is just bollocks, absolute bollocks, you know. These guys fell into doing a TV show. Uh, and and it became, you know, a, an incredibly award-winning international best-selling TV show, award-winning winning best international uh, best-selling book, and and they fell into it. And they didn't ever say that, hey, we're going to be like Superman. We're going to go around the world on our own, and we're going to ride through the sand, and we're going to have no support. They were, they, you know what? It's very very difficult to make an award-winning international TV show without cameras and without editing and without support. And then as soon as you get into that game, then you need things called insurance. And then insurance people say, well, if you're going to do this trip, you've got you and McGregor with you, we want you to have uh, actually a, a doctor on the trip because, you know, you McGregor is worth millions and he's going to do a, a new film when he comes home. And so before you know it, you're not doing the two guy trip that you sort of half intended to do. But actually, you're into this big machine now. And, you know, but they never stood out there and said, you know, we're awesome at this and we're going to travel around the world. How cool are we? They never did that. They never said we're Superman. They never said we're great riders. I mean, for God's sake, how many times did you see them cocking up, cocking Mm -hmm. up, having arguments, having fallouts, having rows at the border, you and McGregor falling off. I mean, we've seen you and fall off, you know, quite a few times, you know, and they're and and so they never ever pretended to be anything more than what they were doing. And so that's I think my big defense. When people say, "Oh, bloody, you know, millionaire actors," you know, well, 
they, they never said they were going to be doing anything else. They, they never pretended to be an NGO, never pretended to be Graham Jarvis, never, you know, they never pretended to be, I don't know, Chris Birch or Miles Davis or, you know, they just went and, and fell into this opportunity. And thank God for Charlie. I mean, it worked fantastic for Charlie. Ewan was always going to be fine career-wise. And, and they came out with something really, really special. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think for many people, it pushed open the doors. I think there was already a wave going on there. I mean, Mondo Enduro had already done incredible stuff. Austin and Austin Vince had done amazing stuff. And other people before him, you know, did some absolutely incredible stuff. I mean, the, the Millennium Man, uh, Charlie always talks about Simon Millwood, the Millennium Ride. Uh, he, he, he was, uh, I think, 2000, and then he, was, he got killed in Africa in 2005. So many people have done incredible things before them, and they never, ever tried to suggest <laughs> that they were the first. But for some reason, people pick up and say, oh, well, you know, you know people did it before them. Yeah, they did. But, but you and Charlie have never said anything different to that, you know? Yeah, and, and the film uh, didn't show anything different either. I mean, it, like you said, you saw them fall. You saw them fight. They, they, looked, they made themselves look bad at points, you know, when yeah, they're arguing yeah, stuff. Absolutely. That stuff, if you've got a big ego, you just clip that out and, and leave it there. I mean, that's one thing I've always said as well with it is I, I don't see them portraying that film, um, themselves in that film, as solo riders. They showed all the crew. They showed everybody there. And, you know, it, it, there was no mystery to it. Yeah, and and you know, do you remember the first few nights? Uh, they were, I think they were just in Eastern Europe, like a couple of weeks in, and uh, and they realised that you know they both had so much stuff with them. You know, they were in the hotel room and and uh, like a little crummy room that they were both sharing, and they got the blanket out, and they both started to put empty all their stuff into this blanket because they both had two electric compressors, they both had a, a, a spanner kit, they both had a puncture repair kit, they both had a you know a torque wrench for God's sake, you know they. And they knew they were being stupid and, and they filmed that and showed that and they, they, they revealed Jesus like, you know, we got rid of all this stuff now because, you know, we were learning like they'd never done anything like that before. And uh, and it was it was exciting. And, and that's why I think Long Way Round was, in my view, much more exciting than Long Way Down. Long Way Down became a bit more prescribed, you know, a bit more, well, this is the template. This is what we've done. Let's do it again. But, but Long Way Round was raw. They were cocking up. They were making mistakes. They were falling out. They were... Yeah, I, I loved it. And, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm always happy to, to defend it because I don't think there's anything to defend. I think I think they did what they did and, and they were lucky. They were cresting a wave, you know. You know, uh, you know uh, when you look at, look at you know, Nick Sanders had done some incredible things. You, you, Austin Vince had done some incredible things with Mondo Enduro and, and, and they, were, they were brilliant. And, and they were part of the, uh, the groundswell that, that, was, that was building this wave. And then Charlie and Ewan were just you know, just had a little bit of luck on their side as well by being in in that wave at the right time, at the right place. And uh, and I don't know whether Charlie mentioned in in, in his uh, interview with you, but it was a, when when they launched it, it didn't go anywhere. It was a proper it was a proper dead duck or a lame duck. It, it, they, they thought, oh, that's not going very well, <laughs> you know. So when it got launched, no one was watching it. And then it was what they call in the game a slow burn. And and then literally inch by inch before you knew it long way round was an international bestseller it just went on and on and on and uh, and i think opened up the, the the gates the gates were already slightly open you know the gates were already they just needed a little bit more pushing and they opened up the 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 audience a world audience to adventure motorcycling and adventure travel and 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 made lots of people say well of a couple of 
idiot actors can do it. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I can do it. If Charlie Borman can do it, if Hugh McGregor can do it, he kept falling off all the time. If he can do it, I can do it. And and I meet people all over the world who who actually say exactly that to me, that they, they looked at Long Way Round and they said, right, I'm going to buy a bike. They rode every inch of that trip. You know what I mean? They Whether, whether there was a support vehicle that was going to turn up you know, eight hours later or the next morning, it's irrelevant. You know, they, 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 they rode every inch of that trip and, uh, and it inspired me. And I wouldn't, I, I guarantee I would not be doing the life having, I have a pretty reasonable life, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I have no complaints. I've traveled all over the world on motorbikes. Like some, some years I've done 50,000 kilometers in one year. Wow. And, and I, I actually put all that down to to long way round because long way round clearly changed the direction of my life. I, I want to go back to you here um, with with uh, you know you've met Charlie and you started to become well you are a theater producer at this point um, which is kind of funny <laughs> <laughs> uh, knowing, the, knowing the story um, but um, you sort of expanded from there like crazy into well you ended up guiding trips can you talk about that. Yeah, well, that's that's down to that looking for opportunities thing again. Because so, so the theatre tours went really well, and and then I thought, well, how else can we monetize this relationship with Charlie? You know, and and yeah, I, I was still doing some consultancy like part time. I was still doing bike truck, and I was still doing IT consultancy to you know to bring revenue in. And uh, uh, and then I just looked at the whole idea of well, if people will pay money to come and listen to Charlie. Maybe people might come and pay money to ride with Charlie. So I'd already been doing bike truck and been taking people to Morocco. I mean, I've been going to Morocco for, you know, since I don't know, t- two thousand, like you know, sort of twenty years. And and uh, and so I came up with this idea of why don't we do a ride with Charlie in Africa? And everyone around Charlie said, "Oh, why don't you just do it in Ireland, Billy? Why don't you just do a, you know, or go to Scotland?" the mountains of Scotland. And I said, no, no. I said, if we're going to do something with Charlie, it's got to be, it's got to be, you know, the high end adventure end. It's got to be amazing. It's got to be Africa, you know? And, uh, and anyway, I, I pulled it together with a, a, a company there. I was already doing some work with a, a tour company and we used them as our, as our partners. And we did uh, the first ride was uh, from Cape town to Victoria falls up to <coughs> Namibia, across to Botswana, Botswana into Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe into, uh, into Victoria Falls. And, and it was a spectacular success. And, and we've been doing them trips uh, ever since. And also on top of that, uh, I opened up ideas talking to a company in Australia called Compass Expeditions. And uh, I said, look, we're doing these trips in Africa and we've seen what you guys do on, on your big trips. You know, we'd like to do some trips in Australia. Can we partner with you? And, and they said, cool, yeah. And, and, and actually now we do trips across Australia and we do trips in, in, in Africa, Southern Africa, uh, covering the whole of Southern Africa. And we do, we do all them with Compass Expeditions and, and they're our, 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 you know, our, our main partners. And, uh, and, and they've been massively successful. And um, we, you know, the reason I was stuck in Australia for the lockdown was we just finished our ride uh, with Charlie, we did a, a tour of Tasmania, which is a very popular one that we do every year. And uh, and I ended up getting stuck. Charlie got out just in time, and I ended up getting stuck. But uh, yeah, so so I started doing tours, and and I fell in love with you know. It's a cliche when people say, you know, you well, once you've been to Africa, you know, you, you you've got to go back, and you'll fall in love with that. And it's it's not a cliche; it's real because I just adore Africa, and 
And so much so, I, I, I decided to become a tour guide over there. So I, I, I learned to become a safari guide. Yeah, it's you're called a licensed a, a, guide. Yeah, a licensed guide, field guide. But the, the real the real word is a field guide. And uh, I, would, I trained with a quite a famous company over there called Eco Training. And Eco Training uh, taught me, you know, to, to, to be a proper guide and uh, a certified guide. So that adds another element so that when, well, you know, when we're in, when we're doing tours and we go uh, in, into, into wildlife areas, it means that I can, you know, number one, our safety is a little bit more uh, in hand because I, I sort of know what I'm talking about when, when we're coming across elephants because, you know, we'll, elephants are lovely, and, but they don't eat donuts, you know. They kill people quite, <laughs> quite, quite often. They kill people and, uh, and uh, particularly in Zimbabwe, you know, in Zimbabwe uh, and in Zambia, often the trail and don't get me wrong this is, we want this to happen often on the trail we'll come around a gravel track trail and and there's a, a couple of elephants and then we go a little bit further and there's a few more and then all of a sudden you realize oh this isn't good because the elephants are before us and behind us which means we're actually in the head and you don't want to be in the head really like you know yeah. so but uh, but you know having some uh, inside knowledge if you like of how to deal We've had lions on the track. We've had three lions, three female lions, only 50 meters ahead of us. This, you know? is, this is on the guided trips. This is on the guided trips, yeah. Wow. yeah. With, with, with Billy, Mr. Field Guide, and Charlie saying, okay, Billy, you you deal with the lion scenario. You go <laughs> ahead and sort the lions out. And I, I have stood on, I've stood on my, sat on my bike with the engine off, first beeping the horn, okay? So no disrespect, Triumph, but the horn on a Triumph 800 adventure is absolutely rubbish. Okay, so you know when you when you're trying to scare three lines away and you go beep beep, you know beep beep isn't just going to cut the mustard. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know you, you need a you need a big BMW horn. You know, and uh, and then the, and also with the triumph, by the way. So that that didn't work. Scaring, they're all lying in the sun across the trail. Clearly, they've eaten. You know, they're, they're very lions only only act, only active for about two, three, four hours a day. They sleep the rest of the time, and they're. And they were looking at me. They could see I was there, but they weren't bothered at all. And and so I started the, the bike up. And, you know, the, the, that Triumph 800, it's a three-cylinder. Three and so I thought, oh, I'll rev it. I'm going to rev it now. That's, this is going to show them lines. And I revved, revved the arse off this bike. And when you rev a three-cylinder Triumph 800, it just goes, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't have that big rasp. Like an like, industrial you know, sewing that, machine, sort of. Exactly. Like what the new 900 does, the new 900... You know, the new 900 uh, uh, Triumph Tiger, it has a different uh, angle to the way the cylinders fire, etc. And uh, and that has a proper rasp. You know, that, that might have worked, but, but the, the last year's 800, that's not going to do it. And uh, and so in the end, I'm throwing stones at them. And by the way, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a registered guide. You're really not supposed to throw stones at animals. You know what I mean? So if anyone has listened to this, you don't know me, Okay. <laughs> And, uh, and and that's the only way I could get them to move. I threw stones at them. And I tell you what is quite interesting. I was throwing stones at them while sitting on the bike, okay? And it wasn't making much difference because the stones were just too small, just gravel from the from the gravel track I was sitting on. And then the only way I could get bigger stones was to get off the bike. And I tell you, lots of people in Africa who listen to this, they'll know this, that when you're sitting on a bike or when you're sitting in a in a safari vehicle, the lions, they take no notice of you. You're just nothing. You're just a big item. As soon as you climb off that motorbike or as soon as you step out of that safari vehicle, you are food. You are 
instantly. And them lazy lions, them completely fast asleep lions with flies all over their faces and you can hear them snoring and, and farting and, you know, nothing's going to move them. But then as soon as you step off that bike, it is scary how quick they literally wake up and they're up and they're staring at you and you you are food. You are potential food, you know. And the mm-hmm. big thing in Africa for any wildlife scenario, never, ever, ever run. Because yeah. things that run, they're food. That confirms it. If anything runs, that's food. And, uh, and I had to get off the bike to go over to the side of the track to get bigger stones. And as soon as I got off, this is only last year, as soon uh-huh. as I got off the bike, We've had them. I know these lines. I've seen these lines there a few times over the years. So they're, they're called the Panda Matenga lines. And the Panda Matenga line, the pride, Panda Matenga, it's on the, the border of Zimbabwe and Botswana. They're, they're renowned for being troubled. They're, they're occasionally taking cattle and things like this. So, so I, sort of, I sort of half know these lines. And, and, but anyway, as soon as I got off, they were up staring at me like alert, like ready for anything, but confused still. They still didn't get it. And then I got back on the bike. And as soon as I got back on the bike, they relaxed again, lay back down again. And I was, you know, safe again. But, but then I threw some big stones and, uh, and they ran away. And, and then, of course, all the clients, all the clients arrive and I say, OK, guys, see them really tall reeds either side of the track? Well, in there somewhere are some female lions and probably maybe a male sitting nearby as well, because that's often the case. And so what we need to decide is, do we go through slowly or do we go through fast? And we did a hands up <laughs> and uh, but, you know, that's all part of the adventure. And, and that, that group had a fantastic day that day. Mm. But no, to me, that, and anyway, getting back to my, my answer is Africa is amazing. And what doubly amazes me with it is to ride a motorbike through it. So, you know, South America, I've done loads, thousands of kilometers all over South America, you know. And, but you know what it's missing in South America for me anyway is the animals. Okay, you've, you've got local South American animals, Puma being the exciting one in my book. But in Africa, you, they're all over the place. I mean, there's just animals everywhere. And you like a little with, thrill of danger in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the idea that when, when, we, when we camp, like well, the idea we're, we're in these like safari tents and outside the tent, outside the tent, lion can come on and have done, come onto the site and are walking around. Like they're looking for scraps. They're looking yeah. for bits of food that people have left or whatever. If, if you get up at the wrong time to go and take a go and take a leak, you, you're going to be facing a lion. And I tell you what, what what people who are in the know will agree with me: a lion in the daytime is easy peasy. Okay, a lion in the nighttime is a completely different oh, yeah. set of rules. You know, you are not going to be throwing stones at them lions in the nighttime. Mm. Them lions are going to be working out a plan. The whole pride are going to be working out a plan how to take you down. Yeah. In the daytime, you get away with murder with lions, but in the nighttime, no, no, that's a you know. We've had lion, we've had a lion in in the camp one night, and the in even though it's Africa in the nighttime, the tent gets really damp and lots of moisture on the outside of the tent because of the dew, you know, in 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 the bush. And we had lions on the camp one night. And I, my side window was open. So when I say the window's open, it's just a mesh, you know, it has a, a cover on it, but it's still a mesh. It's the side of the tent, but you can see through it. It's like a mosquito mesh. And, uh, and the lion came over to my tent and started licking the dew off the tent. Like <laughs> I had my hand over my mouth 
because I didn't want my breath. I mean, clearly the lion, these animals know that we were in the tent. But I, and, and, you know, even though I'm trained in, in, in this area, I don't think anyone knows why the lion won't just like rip open the tent, you know? Mm-hmm. Same with elephants. Elephants will tiptoe around your tent right through the night. They'll eat, they'll eat from the branches above your tent and they'll be right outside your tent. You can hear the stomachs rumbling. You can hear them communicating. They're farting. They're munching, eating the tree, literally eating the tree outside your tent. And sometimes the branches are dropping down on you and you're in the tent, like, you know, three feet away from the elephant's leg. And they will tiptoe around you and they will not stand on that tent. They will not walk across the tent. They don't even fall over the guide ropes. You know, the guide ropes, they don't, I don't even know why, you know? So, that excitement, on top of the fact that you're riding beautiful motorbikes, you know, and, and I ride whatever I can get. So, you know, you know, this trip in Australia, I was on a Harley Davidson road glide, which I wouldn't have had on my list of bikes. And it was awesome to ride that bike. It was so, so cool. And then in Africa, I'm riding Triumph 800s, Triumph 800 XCs, Triumph uh, Adventure, uh, uh, BMW uh, GS1200 Adventure, 1250, uh, the 1250 Rally, riding beautiful motorbikes in, in a place like Africa, and then the second layer of wildlife on top of all that. I mean, life doesn't get any better. Sorry, I'm going off on one now. I'm, I'm, losing, I'm losing control, Jim. <laughs> Yeah, it's it seems like you have such a, an exciting life. And you're doing so many things, and and it's and you're so passionate about it. It definitely comes through in the the way you talk about it, Billy. It's great to sit down and talk with you, and I I really enjoyed it. I can tell we're gonna have to get you back because I know you have so many more stories. Oh, the Afghanistan story. Now that's a big story, and we'll leave that we'll leave that hanging <laughs> till the next time. Thanks, Billy. Okay, that was awesome. Thank you, Jim. See you next time. That was Billy Ward, a.k.a. Billy Bike Truck, from his home in the UK. You must follow Billy on Twitter. His Twitter account is simply at Bike Truck. That link will also be in the show notes for this episode, as well as a a bunch of really interesting photos that Billy gave us for this interview. It's just incredible, the adventures that this guy gets up to. All of that in our show notes for this episode on the Adventure Rider Radio website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener, thank you very much. Hey, if you're not doing it already, we need your help because this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. And with this whole COVID thing going on, well, advertising has dropped off and we're sort of looking to you to to maybe come in here and help support the show that you're enjoying. And if you get something from it every week, I don't know, consider what you pay for coffee or whatever it is else you do and what you get from the show and and maybe 
we uh, step up and drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.